want to invite you to join me in John chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off this morning, turning to verse 22. As you turn there, I want to acknowledge something. There's a, there's a question. It's a question on many of our hearts. It's a question that the Heidelberg Catechism asks, and it asks, what is your only hope in life and death? It's a question that we, we sung about earlier in our hymn of praise. It's a question that we're going to address today in John chapter 10, and let me offer a spoiler alert. Your hope is not in you. So that's the Lord's blessing in the reading and preaching of his word. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, you are, you are our hope in life and death. And I pray that you would open the ears of our hearts to not only hear this word today, but to receive it. Do so, we ask, for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, And it's not for a good work that, you're, that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Seminary was... Uh, it was a deeply impactful, profoundly shaping time for me, maybe because I went in with a relatively blank slate. <laughs> I didn't know much. And so I was able to receive. I was shaped by much in what I was taught, but there were elements of that shaping that wasn't merely the result of 
of lessons I learned from a book. Dr. Robert Peterson was one of my professors. Though Michael and I went to different seminaries, uh, Dr. Peterson taught both of us. He was a resident professor at Covenant Seminary where Michael was, but he came over and taught a systematics class at RTS where I was attending. And Dr. Peterson had this way about him as he, as he taught these deep and beautiful truths of the Lord. There would be times when he would just be seemingly transported to another place. It wasn't a place. It was a state. A state of wonder. A state of worship. Dr. Peterson would proclaim these truths of Jesus and he would just wistfully look off and and say, oh, these truths, they are just too glorious to behold. He was given over to worship. Psalm 139 is the psalmist would, would speak of God's, God's sovereign and, and intimate care over creation as he would knit baby in the mother's womb. The psalmist would, would speak of this same truth. Oh, these truths are too glorious to behold. Job, after arguing with his friends and after proclaiming what he thought to be true of God, God answered him and spoke of his, his majesty and of his power in Job before the Lord. He said, oh, these truths are too glorious to behold. Sitting under Dr. Peterson, I began to be shaped by the reality that truth ought to fuel worship. Mere creatures, and we... Make no mistake, our mere creatures. We cannot fully comprehend the glory of God. Though we may try, we cannot fit Him into a box of our own understanding. And that would be to put ourselves in a position of lordship over Him. But our God, more than a God who is meant to be grasped, is a God who is to be worshipped. There are truths in this text that are too glorious to behold, that we cannot grasp, but we can seek to grasp the implications of those truths. The implications of His glory and grace. Here's a truth in this text. A truth that I have I've read for you a truth that was repeated in the text. And it is a, a truth too glorious to behold. It is a truth that envelops the whole of this passage. One that you and I cannot grasp. But we must wrestle with its implications. Verse 30 and verse 38. Jesus says this. I and the Father are one. He goes on in verse 38 to say, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. This truth, that is too glorious to behold, is the truth of an eternal, loving union. A union in which God the Son and God the Father have, have enjoyed a mutually indwelling, mutually loving relationship from before the beginning of time, from eternity past to eternity future. A mutually indwelling, mutually loving union that includes God the Spirit. 
that God the Father, the one who by his power spoke matter into being, God the Creator, He is in union with God the Son, God the Redeemer. The God of power and might is the God of intimacy. The God of grace. They are not separate, they are one. This tells us something deep and powerfully shaping about the person of God the Father. It tells us something, something deeply shaping about the power and might of God, the Son. There is a union between Creator and Redeemer. There is a union between Father and Son and Spirit. There is a union between Sender and Savior. And that truth, that beautiful truth that we cannot grasp, but we must, we must worship in light of, that truth tells us that there is also a union, mission, which tells us that our Savior, He's effective. This is a big God text. Make no mistake about it. It is doctrinally rich, and it is one that you and I cannot grasp, but we get to receive the implications of it. This, this truth that, that envelops the whole of the passage is midway through the text. But there's an interaction that leads up to that in interaction. To that truth statement. It begins with, once again, with, with Jesus' interaction with the Jews in, in, the, in the temple. This is the feast of, of dedication. It's, it's what we, uh, the Jews now celebrate as, as Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. You don't find it in the Old Testament. It was established during the intertestamental period. There in the winter time, the, the Jewish leaders, they come up to Jesus once again, and they ask him what they pose is as a, a simple question. But their simple question, it belies their desire to, to control and to minimize. As I think about it, I think of, courtroom scenes or maybe a congressional hearing those those scenes that you and I mostly watch on on TV it's the scene where whether it's the lawyer or whether it's the senator they 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 get the witness in front of them and say all I want is a yes or no answer no elaboration just give me a yes or no why do they do that well they do it in an attempt to assert dominance over the witness. It's an attempt to control the conversation, to control the outcomes, to control the implications. The, the Jews here come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us a simple yes or no answer. Are you the Christ? With that, the camera turns to Jesus. In verse 25, he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's not the answer that they expected. It's not the answer they wanted. It was not the simple yes or no answer for two reasons. First, they're not in control. And as much as we want to, to 
think that we are, Jesus is reminding them and us, you cannot manipulate the living God. You cannot control the living God. But there's a second reason and Jesus doesn't give the answer that they want. Though the answer really is that simple, though the answer really is as simple as a yes or no, they didn't understand the question that they are posing. They didn't understand who the Christ was. They didn't understand what he had come to do. Once upon a time, uh, a singer-songwriter named Bonnie Tyler wrote and sang a song, Holding Out for a Hero. If you know the words to that song, you almost can't say them without singing them, but I'll do you the favor of not singing them. (laughs) Tyler sang, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. It's got to be strong. It's got to be fast. He's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. He's got to be sure and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. Bonnie Tyler was looking for a hero. The Jews were also looking for a hero. They are asking Jesus, are you that hero? And on one level, we ask ourselves, what's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. Bonnie Tyler and the Jews were looking for a man. They were looking for a man who could come And do their bidding. A man whom on some level they could control. The problem is a man will fail. The man would be there to provide some external relief from an external opposition. But Jesus hadn't come to kick the Romans out of town. Jesus is not the hero they were looking for. He's not the hero that we are looking for if we were looking merely for a man. Because Jesus is the living God. Jesus came for them and for us for the same purpose. To save them and us from ourselves. From our internal sin problem. And to give us life abundant and life everlasting. Rather than a simple yes or no answer, Jesus tells them, I've already told you. But you didn't believe. And not only did I tell you by my word, I showed you by my works. When Jesus speaks of works here in this text, he's, he's speaking with, uh, in, a, in a bigger context than the signs that we have been looking to in John's account. As powerful as those signs are, that are those miracles that John the Apostle has been presenting to us, those signs that point to Jesus' identity, to his deity, to the fact that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Christ. Jesus points to his works that include those signs, those miracles, but also include his teaching, include his life. What Jesus is saying that more than my miracles, the whole of my life speak to my being. He's saying that there is a consistency between my word and my works. Because you need to hear this. Because there are implications for what I'm about to say to where we are going in this text. There are some things that you and I hear and we don't understand. Things like math problems. 
Things like logical arguments. We hear them and yet we don't understand them. But on the other hand, there are those things that we hear and we don't receive. But we understand them. Maybe we understand them all too well. But we don't, we can't, we won't receive them. In his explanation, Jesus is saying that is what is going on. You hear my words, but you won't receive them. He says, I told you, but you can't hear, verses 26 and 27, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He's saying that to hear and to believe is to receive. Powerful statement. With profound implications, Jesus is telling them they don't believe because they are not his sheep. Not they aren't his sheep because they don't believe. Did you hear the difference? It is a radical difference. It's a radical difference of cause and effect. Jesus is saying they don't believe because they are not his sheep. He is not saying... You are not my sheep because you don't believe. Here's the difference. We think belief causes our belonging to Jesus. We think that because we believe the word of God, then we can become Jesus' sheep. But Jesus says something radically different. He says the opposite Because you are my sheep, because you belong to me, you hear and receive the word of God. Friends, this is a big Jesus passage with big Jesus implications. Jesus is telling them and us, you are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your belief. You're saved by Jesus. And by Jesus alone. You're saved by Jesus because in union with the Father, He has claimed you from before the beginning of time. And accord with that claiming, Jesus in union with the Father has secured you. And in union with Father and Son, you belong to Jesus because the Holy Spirit has changed your heart so that you can hear and receive the glorious news of the gospel. It's all Jesus From beginning to end, it's not your works. It's not even your belief. It's Jesus. That is a radical truth from a radical Savior. And Jesus is telling the Jews why they can't hear. But he's not merely telling them and us why they can't hear. He's also encouraging us, telling us what the sheep receive. Verse 28, I gave them eternal life, and they will, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Gift of eternal life, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. As beautiful as that promise of eternal life is, that third statement, that third statement is what you and I need today. Because that third statement is what gives us the experiential reality of the Christian life, the joy of the Christian life. The implication of Jesus' word throughout this text. 
the implication of his union with the Father is this. You and I are kept by Christ. It tells us that our assurance of salvation is in Jesus. Where are you looking for assurance? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the past month where talking with people who are struggling. I hear the questions. Many of us are doubting. We're doubting some element of the word. We're doubting some element of the truth of the gospel. We're doubting ourselves and that doubt leads to fear because we tell our own selves that a true believer true believer wouldn't doubt in this way so who am I some of us the doubts that we wrestle with the struggles that we have aren't merely those internal attacks but they are external we're talking with others talking with a skeptic, maybe even we're talking with the atheist, with those who have not only not received the word of truth, but who have actively rejected it. As, as Paul says in Romans 1, they have suppressed the knowledge of the truth of God. And we're listening to their, to their attacks. And we feel like if we cannot give them a precise answer to their, to their question, then maybe we don't believe. We fear that our faith is on shaky ground. And hear this. If your confidence is in your faith, then you are on shaky ground. If your confidence is in your faith, then you are wrecked. Can you relate? Do you know these questions? Do you know these internal struggles? Do you know these external attacks? I know you can relate. There's hope in this passage, and don't take my word for it. Take the word of Christ. Verse 29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Snatch, it implies force. Some of us here today are experiencing that forceful pull, that forceful tug, and we're deathly afraid that we will lose our grip on faith. But Jesus is telling us in this text, my grip is greater. My grip is greater than yours. I've got you. I bought you. The Father has given you to me, and I'm not a hired gun. Last week we heard about the hireling who runs when the going gets tough. Jesus didn't run away. He ran towards the trouble. He says, I've got you. Because I and the Father are one. We should also understand the implication, the glorious implication of this truth. It's not merely that the enemy can't take us away. This truth that Jesus is telling us means this. If we are his, it's not just that somebody else can take us away. It's that we ourselves can't wiggle out of his grip. Friends, 
our assurance? It's in Him. Our assurance is in Jesus and in His word of truth. A word that He offered for us and for them. But there, many of them couldn't hear it. Oh, they grasped its meaning. That's why they picked up the stones to kill him. They heard, but they couldn't receive. And verse 32 and verse 33 are, are pointing out that, that they could hear, but didn't receive. They, they couldn't see and grasp the consistency of Jesus' life and his message. But he didn't give up on them. What are we to do with that? The Jesus who is sovereign over salvation, he didn't give up on them. Well, it tells us a couple of things. Number one, his word does not return void. His word is a word of condemnation and a word of invitation. His word would push away those who, who are not his own, and it will draw to him those who are. He pursues them even though they were pursuing him to kill him. And he does the same for us. This word was for them. It is for us. He pursued them here by, by the voice of reason. Verses 34 and 36 are a bit confusing for us. Jesus says, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? What's going on there? Jesus is citing, he, he's, he's connecting with them by saying your law, it's his law, it's his word. He's the word incarnate. He's being gracious by, by couching it in those terms. Your law is the prophets, or the, the Psalms. He's citing Psalm 82, 6. Psalm 82 is a psalm that connects to the human judges, those human judges who were fallible. And in there, in the text, it refers to those human judges as gods, little g gods, not because they are divine, but because they bear the image of the divine. They bear the image of God, and Jesus connects to that word and is essentially saying, how much greater is the Son of God, who is consecrated by God, and who is sent into the world to proclaim this message. How much greater is this Jesus? I don't even have time to deal with the parenthetical aside that is in verse 35 where he says that the Word of God cannot be broken. Jesus is speaking to the Word of God. It's timeless and true. See, it's timeless true it's a word of reasoning it's also embedded in here a word of encouragement for them and for us Jesus says even though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father you ever have doubt in one particular area or another Jesus is saying it's okay, either believe in me or believe in the works, but they both point to the same truth. It's an encouragement for those of us who doubt, for the person who struggles in a particular area of life because Jesus is saying that all of my life, all of my work is consistent. Jesus pursued, he reasoned, he encouraged, and many, if not most of them, did not believe. They continued to try and kill him, and so he went away. 
to the other side of the Jordan. But, but in time, some did believe. How about us? What will we do with this beautiful, powerful, profound truth of the oneness of God? I asked earlier, where do we look for assurance? Hear this. Hear this. Our assurance is not in the strength of our faith, but in the person of Jesus. But again, don't take my word for it. Take the word of Christ. One of the enemy's greatest forms of attack is to, is to try and convince us that we're the only ones who struggle with doubt. The enemy wants to isolate us to be by ourselves and think that no one else struggles in the same way I do. It's only me. Well, Luke chapter 7 tells us that there was another doubter. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says that that doubter, that other doubter, was the greatest man born of woman. John the Baptist. John the Baptist had known Jesus from the womb. And yet he struggled with doubt in Luke chapter 7. You see, he was in prison there. And maybe he was wondering, this isn't how I thought it would all work out. Maybe he was wondering why those people who mocked Jesus were, were persecuting him. So John the Baptist struggled and wondered, is Jesus the one? So he sent his disciples to Jesus to go and inquire. Hear this. Hear this. This is so important. John the Baptist struggled with doubt. But John the Baptist took that doubt to Jesus. He knew where to take his struggle. It was a doubt that he took to Jesus. And in doing so, we see that his doubt was the doubt of one who had faith. Brothers and sisters, the faithful are not the ones who are free from struggles. The faithful are the ones who know where to take their struggles to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus didn't give John the Baptist a simple yes or no answer. He didn't say yes or no. He sent the disciples back to John saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Jesus didn't rebuke the doubter then. He doesn't rebuke the doubter now. He encouraged John the Baptist and he encourages us by pointing him and us to the consistency of his life and his word. And he knew then with John the Baptist, and he knows now with us. We have it. Tightly in his grip. Friends, if John the Baptist can wrestle with doubt, then so can we. If John the Baptist can find hope, so can we, because our hope is in Christ. We have the same assurance that John the Baptist had. We have our assurance in Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't believe in your works. Don't even believe in your belief. Believe in Jesus. He is one with the Father. So hear and receive and rest in his word. I give to my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Father, your word is true. Your word is all we need.
because your word points us to Christ. And in him we find life eternal. Would you give us hearts to receive the word of Christ and find assurance in him for your glory and for our good.